Welcome to We Should Probably Be Studying. My name is Paula Kincaid, and I am joined with my co-host and dear friend, Nick Johnson. Nick, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paula? Oh, I'm good. I could not complain. So if you're new to this podcast, be sure to give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast streaming platform you're using, because that will help spread awareness of our podcast through some sort of fancy algorithm that makes more people see our show. So be sure to give us a five-star rating. Yes, we need to stay in the algorithm. Also, uh, make sure you hit the follow button so you can stay up to date with our future content. We are just a guy and a girl trying to leave our mark in the social sciences. And the purpose of this podcast is to get the behind the scenes take on really interesting articles being published in the top management and organization journals from the people who know the work the best, the authors themselves. Whether or not you're a nerd at heart like me and my co-host Nick, or just a regular Joe or Jane Doe, we hope to provide an outlet for all people to learn about really interesting and insightful research, regardless of who you are and what you do to contribute to society. So sit back and relax. And enjoy our show. This is We Should Probably Be Studying. Hey there, how are you? Hi, how are you? How are you? Good. Good. Well, it's so nice to meet you. My name is Paula. And I'm Hi. Nick. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Great to meet you both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So today we are joined by Dr. Christopher Myers. Dr. Myers recently wrote a manuscript titled Storytelling as a Tool for Vicarious Learning Among Aeromedical Transport Crews. And this manuscript was recently accepted for publication and is now available online to read at Administrative Science Quarterly. So first things first, I just want to start off and say congratulations. I would personally love to publish an ASQ, so I'm super excited to speak with you today just because I want to get all of the details of how your experience was. I guess we can first start off by saying, or tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, um, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm excited to discuss the paper with you all. Uh, I'm a faculty member at Johns Hopkins University. Um, where I do a lot of research on how people learn in organizations more generally. So I focus in particular on healthcare organizations, but I'm interested in how people learn in knowledge intensive work more broadly. And so, you know, I've uh, done a little bit of work um, focused on kind of processes by which individuals learn from their own experience. But a lot of my work looks at how people learn from other people's experiences. And so I, I really enjoy getting to dig into that a little bit in healthcare contexts. Um, that's kind of where I grew up and, and spent a lot of time. And so it's fun to be able to turn that into an opportunity for research now. Yeah, and Nick and I were just talking right before you hopped on and we were, we were going back through your CV trying to figure out how did he get introduced into like healthcare management and with all of the learning aspect behind that context? And I was like, well, maybe he worked in a hospital at some point. And Nick was like, no, he has full business background. And I looked back and I said, you know, you're right. I don't know. So how did you get involved with the medical side? So I grew up in a, a family that worked in healthcare, And okay. so initially when I went to grad school, uh, studying healthcare was the furthest thing from my mind. I thought I was going to study leadership and study culture. And so I did some uh, early work in, in those areas. But, you know, over time kind of got drawn into the healthcare context as, you know, both a 
exemplar of kind of knowledge intensive work, but also as a really just valuable context unto itself. Now the largest sector of our economy, the largest employer. So, you know, if you're interested in organizations and organizational behavior, it's kind of hard to not think about healthcare contexts as important ones, given how big they are in the, the world of work now. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in a context of medical doctors. What made you want to pursue a life as a social scientist doctor? It's a great question. Um, I was studying in undergrad. I had plans to, to do a master's in accounting and, and be a forensic accountant. That was my, my sort of career goal. Um, and then had the, the very good fortune of taking an organizational behavior course with Adam Grant. Uh, who was just starting his career out at UNC at that time, um, was already kind of a superstar and uh, especially an amazing uh, teacher in the classroom. And so he really sort of lit the fire for me. And uh, I realized that this was an option. This was a profession that, that one could pursue and just kind of study these questions, think about how organizations can function more or less effectively. I had been seeing a little bit of that firsthand in work I was doing leading uh, outdoor groups, um, working as like a kayaking and backpacking and rock climbing instructor. Um, and so it, it was the first time I had realized there were terms and concepts for all the things that I was seeing when I watched groups struggle on the trail. And so um got hooked pretty much right after his course and and sort of changed trajectory and okay. decided that this is what I wanted to do. Awesome. So it seems as if you've kind of used your personal experiences to, you know, motivate your research. Um so like ethnography studies. Um I would say kind of what motivated you to start this paper? This one was um actually born out of a class paper in grad school and so you know at at uh, the University of Michigan, where I did my PhD, everyone takes a field research methods course. And so you are um, required to go out and find a field site and, and start doing kind of qualitative field work there. And, um, you know, it's a very much an experiential learning kind of exercise. And I was very fortunate to get connected to this organization and um, have an opportunity to go and collect data there and um, really just got hooked and, um fascinated with this question of how these crews were able to learn from each other, given that they were working very independently. And, you know, you couldn't just look over and see what somebody was doing. Um, and at the same time, you couldn't be expected to know everything that you would need to do because it's such a complex work environment. And so, you know, just got kind of fascinated with that question. It grew into my dissertation work and then ultimately spun off into a few papers. And this was one of them. So was it very difficult to get into the site to be able to conduct your ethnography or um, was it something that just occurred because it was at the university, I'm assuming that you are at? So I tried a couple different sites. You know, I had some organizations like an ambulance organization, for example, that I had reached out to that said, you know, no, this isn't something that we're comfortable with. Sure. Um, the air medical transport program I ended up working with is affiliated with the university. And so they they got the educational mission. They had a program for folks to come in and do kind of ride alongs and observations already anyway. So this was something that happened in this organization already. Um, I just did it a lot more than than any of the regular ride alongs would do. So got in there. They were very open and receptive and and fortunately granted me quite a bit of access um, that allowed me to really try to get in and understand the experience that these flight nurses were having. 
What was the number one thing that you take away from there outside of like about the paper, about your ethnography? What was the number one thing that you think is memorable about the whole process? Oh, well, I was there for a a while, kind of on and off, right? You know, so there were a couple periods of sort of more intensive visiting and observation, but tried to stay connected, you know, really over the the rest of my time in in graduate school. And so um, a lot of memorable experiences as a result of that. The world of air medical transport is a is a fun one, uh, as they like to say. Uh, the joke was always putting the fun in dysfunction because, by definition, it is um, kind of quick, reactive sort of work. Um, but also in a very complex, very demanding uh, tasks. And so, you know, the just the, the pace and speed at which things went and the, the amount of time it took for me to really become comfortable and, and familiar, even just with terminology and, and the words that people would use, um, it definitely took a while. So we have been talking all about like ethnographies and talking about the medical field and whatnot, but it just dawned on me, we did not have you do an elevator pitch of your paper. (laughs) So if you can give us an elevator pitch of your paper. So when I went to um, AirMed Pro is the the pseudonym in the the paper, um, one of the things that jumped out at me pretty, pretty quickly out of the gate was that you know, the, the amount of knowledge and experience and expertise that people needed to have did not match up with the amount of exposure and sort of repetitions that they would get in doing the work. So you need to be ready for anything, except that you're only going to do one, maybe two transports in any given shift. And it was not uncommon to go a whole shift without doing anything. Um, so a lot of our standard models of kind of experiential learning didn't seem to make as much sense there nor too did models of kind of formalized knowledge transfer routines you know um set practices and things that that might help us deal with encountering new kinds of task challenges and so there was this puzzle for me of you know almost by all theoretical accounts what they were doing shouldn't work um and so i was very curious how it did manage to work at least well enough that that they could perform their tasks and so started digging into the interpersonal storytelling interactions that they used as a way of transferring their experiences to one another um of course storytelling has been studied in our field for for quite some time but it's often thought of as something that people do to pass down kind of more peripheral information like oh this is kind of the the culture the norms you know not necessarily this is how you do this particular task. But that's exactly what these flight nurses were doing. They were telling these elaborate stories about the work that they were performing on each of these transports. And so I was very interested in that process, but also what was happening in the organization that allowed those stories to not just be kind of fun office banter the way they are in many organizations, but actually be sort of an essential part of their learning process. And so I looked at kind of structures and practices in the organization that both kind of on the front end, allowed people to better engage in these storytelling interactions and on the back end kind of scaled the lessons that that came out of those stories. So that's a very long, it, it was a tall elevator, um, I guess, but maybe that's, no, that's the, okay. <laughs> the elevator pitch. Oh, I, I, I would say I, I love the paper. I think it's very interesting. I'm very fascinated with storytelling as well as the or ethnographic approach that you took um, to understand this context. So I guess my question would be, I noticed you're a solo author on this paper. What was your decision behind that, you know, versus collaborating with others? 
Yeah. So, you know, with ethnographic work, you know, my guess is you would tend to see more solo authored paper uh, among ethnographers than perhaps other sort of methods, um, in part because, you know, a lot of it is based on you know, the the experiences that you had in the field. And so, you know, of course, you you document things in field notes and you have interview transcripts, but, you know, keeping all of these experiences in mind, you know, it kind of happens yes. in your head. And now that's certainly not to say that, that the paper was accomplished on my own by any stretch. So I had a ton of support, a lot of folks kind of reading drafts and and giving feedback, both mentors and advisors, also, you know, um, some great colleagues that I work with in a writing group. Um, and then of course the reviewers and the editor as well, giving a lot of guidance and feedback to, to help shape these kind of rough observations in the field into something that, that could make a contribution. So I've noticed that you have also published with authors as well. So mm-hmm. in terms of writing process, when you are a solo author versus when you have other colleagues that you are working with, did you run into any different types of bumps in the road or roadblocks in the writing process that was different as a solo author versus with other colleagues? I mean, it, it it definitely is, for me, a slower process because there's nobody to hand off to. So if I hit busy periods of teaching or or just a, a block in my ability to kind of think about the, the paper or understand it, you know, I had to to kind of step away from it for a little while and, and come back to it. I will say, you know, Administrative Science Quarterly is a journal that I think is particularly um, friendly to these kind of rich ethnographies or just kind of big concept papers uh, more generally. Not that mine is a big concept, but you know they they give you plenty of time to work on a revision, and I think that that's quite helpful because I know for me it helped to step away from the paper for a little while um, and come back to it with a little bit more of a fresh perspective in the way that you might if you were handing it off to a co-author. Um, it's just when it's just you, it's uh, a matter of time before you can get away and come back. I have a quick question about your ethnographic approach. When you are doing your field notes and following up after interviews, do you particularly use um, like pen and paper type of taking notes or do you use like a voice recorder and have an automatic transcription pop out? What do you do personally that makes your ethnography work successful? Um, I'm happy to share what I did. I should caveat that, you know, I'm by no means an expert ethnographer there. So uh, I, there are many more expert people than I in the field. This is my one and only sort of ethnographic paper. But um, given the the kind of nature of the work I was observing, most of my field notes were uh, handwritten in just a small notepad that I could keep in one of my pockets um, during the flights or, or during downtime in between flights. So I would take notes about what I was observing. I would try to um, write down quotes that I heard from folks uh, as close to verbatim as I could. Um, And especially during those intensive periods of observation, I would take those notes and then I would come back and and write, kind of type up uh, a detailed field note for for each of my observations. And then interviews are are a little bit easier, right? Those are recorded and transcribed. So uh, a little little less work there in terms of kind of manual note taking, but trying to sort of synthesize all of that and and pull it together. So as a PhD student that's interested in ethnographic work, what challenges do you think you faced during this, you know, project uh, that you would recommend, you know, as a PhD student, maybe I try to avoid in the future? 
It's a great question. I think paying attention to, you know, field notes and documenting and, and you know, um, putting down as, as much as you can um, was was one thing because you know, I didn't know at the time that this would grow into to a big paper, let alone, you know, stretch over as many years as it did. And so there were times where I wish I had taken slightly more detailed notes about something or expanded on an idea. So I would mention something or you know, capture a kind of fragment of something that was happening that made sense at the time. But reminding yourself that you're going to be reading these notes in five years, you know, maybe even 10 years helps you be more detailed in the notes that you are taking. So you'd mentioned that ASQ is very friendly in the review process. How long did it take for you to go from initial submission to a publication? Yeah, so I submitted the first draft of this paper to ASQ in October of 2016, and it was conditionally accepted in February of 2021. So about a, a five-year-ish process, a little a little less than that to conditional accept. Kind of full accept came in the, the fall of 2021. Now, I will say the, the reviewers and the editor uh, did their part. So they turned it around in a couple months each time, three to four months, maybe. Um, I'd have to go back and look. But, you know, with ethnographic work um, and qualitative work more generally, the the revisions tend to be big, especially early on. So, you know, my, my first decision letter came back with, I think, something to the effect of ASQ does not offer a reject and resubmit option. However, if they did, that's what I would be giving you. Since they don't, you're getting a revise and resubmit. But know that this is you know, a tall order here. And they were absolutely right. You know, I had the kernel of an idea, but it was a big mess of a paper. And so, you know, that first revision, I think I spent 18 months on kind of reanalyzing the data, rewriting the whole, I mean, it was a different paper, kind of front to back, still built around the same uh, idea of how these flight nurses told stories and the structures and practices that were there to to learn from, to sort of support that learning but really a, a different paper kind of front to back. Um, and then the the subsequent revisions, I think, were probably a similar length, nine to 10 months on each round, just to really make sure that I had gone back through all of the reviewer feedback, done as much as I could with them, really thought through the data. And as I mentioned before, you know, step away from it for a little while and try to come back because, you know, uh, I would get stuck on a particular point or a, a particular way of seeing things and it helped to have that time. So, you know, the reviews were were really thorough and um, developmental, but I think the biggest thing was, you know, getting the time to be able to to give it that length of time that it needed to do a good revision versus trying to rush it out in a month or two. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I had never heard of journals being able to give like that long of time in your R&R process. So that is, that's great for qualitative workers. I'm glad that <laughs> they're affording the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I would not encourage people to take five years uh, on any paper. Um, so I, sure. I can't say that I, I recommend it, but sure. I do think that, you know, there are certain types of research that take a little bit of time. And especially with the the depth of revisions that are necessary sometimes to really find the right fit in the literature and the the right contribution. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful to, you know, my editor, Christine Beckman, and the anonymous reviewers who, you know, saw that there was maybe something here, you know, and took a couple tries of, well, not quite, you know, no, overshot the other direction, but helped me kind of craft something that that makes 
some kind of contribution to the field. Yeah, definitely. And Nick and I just recently spoke with Ashley Rocapriore and Tim Pollock. And Tim was explaining that there were a few times during their review process where a reviewer had a concern or an issue about something in the paper and gave a suggestion for how they wanted it to be addressed. But it might not have been the best suggestion. And so him and Ashley, they were able to push back a little bit on the reviewers and give a reasonable explanation for why they couldn't do XYZ. And then they followed up and said, but to address this issue, we've done ABC to address the concern. In your case, did you experience any of that where you pushed back a little bit on the reviewer and said, I'm not sure that that might not be right? Or was it pretty much everything since it was a complete turnaround? Was it pretty much like, OK, we're going to go with it. And we're going to try this. I will say the reviewers were were very helpful and consistent on the conceptual side in terms of trying to push me to better articulate the contribution of the work, to think about different literatures. So I had been focused really intensively on the interpersonal level. They pushed me to, to think about the inter-team level of analysis and the, the literature on learning across teams. So that was incredibly helpful. And, um, you know, I think with ethnography, there's there's less kind of, uh, so I've I will say on other papers, quantitative papers, I have encountered more of that where a reviewer said you should do this, and I said no, actually the way that I'm doing it is is the better way, and here's why. Um, I think on quantitative papers um, that happens a little bit more often. With qualitative work, I think you know it is all about interpreting the the things that you saw and the the meaning of the quotes. So there's a little bit more um, sort of openness there. Yeah, but even still, you know, I think there there's always times in a review process where you kind of push back and say, I see what you're saying. I see where the, the concern is. I haven't done it exactly the way that that you said, but I've done this to try to address the the heart of the concern. Mm -hmm. Your paper has contributions for future research. How would you recommend uh, future scholars, you know, build off of your research and contribute, you know, to the field? It's a good question. I think there's more and more interest kind of re-emerging, I will say. I don't think it ever went away, but it was um, not as central as it's starting to become again in kind of social learning processes and organizations. I think as we think about more distributed work environments, uh, virtual work environments, there's been you know a lot of talk about how that's going to influence knowledge sharing. So I think the the mechanisms and the processes that emerged in this context uh, are admittedly an extreme case and so trying to see what that looks like in in other work settings right is is the storytelling these flight nurses were doing only working because they had no other way to see each other's experiences or learn from each other's experiences or would it have some value in a workplace where you could look over someone's shoulder and see how they were doing it as well. Right? So trying to figure out, you know, what are the contexts where this might generalize, but also this interplay of kind of interpersonal interaction with broader work structures and practices. Um, I think that's something that that I'm seeing people examine more and more. And I hope this kind of adds another brick in that wall of how we think about the structures shaping our interactions, but also interactions kind of creating new structures and new practices in the organization. Yeah, I'm from the construction industry where there can be a lot of uncertainty. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of structure on a construction site, but there can also be a lot of uncertainty. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think maybe uh, storytelling could be a good way to kind of help people move forward and learn on the job training through storytelling. So for our non-academic listeners who want to learn how to manage their organizations better or just help you know, their employees learn more efficiently, what can they learn from this paper to apply to their workplace? Yeah, I think the acknowledgement and focus on interactions, on storytelling as an important part of the learning process, right? I think we all intuitively get that and know that, you know, these stories are valuable for us and we pick things up from them, but we don't always create the the opportunities or the environments for those. So, you know, uh, one feature of this context that was really interesting is that these flight nurses, when they weren't flying, were sitting in their office, you know, maybe doing some paperwork and things like that. But they weren't kind of maximizing for efficiency in the sense of, you know, working in the emergency room and then just jumping out, going and getting on the helicopter when they needed to fly. And that downtime, that kind of space and time was really when they engaged in a lot of this storytelling. And so I think for leaders in other industries, you know, we have to be mindful of where are we creating the space and time for people to interact, to share their experiences with one another? Um, and are we giving enough time you know, that's away from the demands of doing the task, doing the job, building the the building, whatever it may be, you know, to enable people to learn. And because I think we sometimes try to eliminate that time because it looks like a loss of efficiency or it's wasted time or people are just sitting around shooting the breeze. Um, well, there's actually some value in those interactions and there's some learning that may not show up right away, you know, um, but that nonetheless is kind of building the collective capacity of individuals uh, who make up the organization. And, you know, that's really interesting when you explained it in those terms. But I used to work in a counseling and psychiatry clinic, and I worked at the front desk. And oftentimes, a lot of the counselors that worked in the office with me, they would kind of all congregate together when they didn't have clients, and they would discuss issues that they had with a client or, you know, they were receiving feedback from other counselors and the psychiatrists that worked there just to learn from when they've had clients that have similar issues, how did they go about handling that client so that they could then help their own client more effectively. So I definitely have seen this firsthand. It's just so good to finally see things in our articles that you can literally put your finger on in your workplace and say, I've seen that. Right. (laughs) And that those conversations can kind of build our core task capabilities. Right. You know, I think we've all known that water cooler talk happens. You know, we've we've all seen that it's been a part of organizations as long as organizations exist. But I think from a, a leadership and certainly from a theory standpoint, we sometimes kind of write that interaction off as, oh, it might build, you know, relationships, it might build trust, it might build culture and camaraderie, but it's mostly just kind of, you know, um, it's like it about, won't actually help your performance type of thought. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and certainly culture and, and hearing about, you know, the values of the organization are incredibly important. And there's been great research looking at how stories are vehicles for communicating an organization's values. And so I, I don't mean to say that those aren't relevant for performance, but those values conversations about the whys of what we're doing are different from kind of the nuts and bolts conversations of how we're going to do this job. And I think we forget that those water cooler conversations are often 
just as much about how we're going to do the job as about the values. And so modeling, recognizing, theorizing that process, I think is something that that can help us quite a bit. So we've obviously, we've mentioned this before, we've seen your CV. It's really impressive. And not only have you had good luck with ASQ, but you've had quite a winning streak with the <laughs> with the journals at Academy. I, I made a note that you published at AMJ, AMR, Annals, Perspective, Discoveries. Do you have any advice for PhD students or junior faculty that you want to share about how you were able to successfully publish within the academy as well as specifically to ASQ? Yeah, so I appreciate the kind words. The CV is all the ones that hit and what you don't see is all the ones that miss. And the only way you get hits is by getting misses, right? And so I could pick any any one of the sports icons or, or life philosophers to, to quote here, but you know, I'll just go with the, the classic, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take in the sense that things getting in is a function of things getting submitted um, and things getting rejected. You know, I've had more papers rejected from ASQ than the one that was accepted there. <laughs> and each time I, I learned a lot, I understood what that particular journal is looking for, but more broadly understood how to, to craft my arguments, how to refine the contributions that I was making and sort of articulate the, the value in, in those papers. So I um, have been very fortunate to have some hit, but I think it's a function of how many have missed if nothing else. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of been curious with people's confidence levels when they go into submitting a paper. When you, and this could be for really any of the papers, not necessarily the ASQ, but for any of the papers that you've submitted, have you been ever very confident, like, oh yeah, this is a great paper for this journal, it's going to knock their socks off? Or are you pretty much like biting your nails, anxious the whole time while you're waiting? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever felt confident about, you know, a, a manuscript I submitted. I felt confident in the work that, you know, I think I'm onto something. I think I'm doing something interesting. I'm proud of what I've put together. But number one, there's always ways to make things better. And number two, there's always things that reviewers will point out, you know, whether it makes it better or not. I've been quite lucky that most of the reviewer feedback I've gotten helps make the work better. Uh, and, you know, never something that that I feel confident about you know, sending something in. But uh, over time, I have felt more and more comfortable, I would say, with what I'm submitting, knowing that, okay, I've done what I can with this paper. I think it has been framed up well, and I'm excited by the results in it, or I'm excited by the contribution that it might make, and I'm ready to kind of receive that feedback. I live under no delusion that somebody will read the first draft of any of my papers and go, oh, this is amazing, and we need to publish it right away. Uh, <laughs> there are folks out there who who can write like that and, and uh, submit like that. Um, I know I'm I'm in a, every paper, I'm in it for the long haul, um, and just excited to, to get the opportunity to revise it and improve the paper and try again. Mm -hmm. So for PhD students who, let's say they're writing class papers and they're just like, you know, I want to submit to a journal, but they're not sure which journal to submit to. What advice would you give to a PhD student on? I think reviewing what has been published recently there, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the journals all kind of have a particular flavor, a particular style that you start to see as you read more and more. Um, there are certainly exceptions to that, and you know they publish a, a great range of papers. But I think you get a sense of the kind of work that you're doing, the the literature and the conversation that you're contributing to. And then you try to see where that that conversation has been happening. Type of paper as well, right? In terms of you know, is it is it more of an empirical contribution, 
right, qualitative or quantitative? Is it more of a conceptual theoretical contribution? Is it more integrative? Is it reviewing things? So, you know, the, the, there are obviously different journals for different kind of types of manuscripts of reviews versus empirical, but even kind of within them, you, you can look at your paper and start to feel over time, like, okay, where's the biggest contribution here? Is it in the theory? Is it in the empirics? Is it in the review or synthesis of different perspectives? And you can find particular homes for those kinds of papers just by looking at what has been published there um, in the last few years. If I remember correctly, Adam Grant was a big reason why you had considered getting into your PhD program. So now that you are a professor, have you contacted Adam and been like, hey, we should probably work on something now. I mean, you got me into this. Let's do something. (laughs) I was very lucky to work with Adam on a couple projects as an RA when I was a student. He then moved up to Wharton while I was there. And uh, I've been very lucky to to stay in touch with him for time to time and see him at conferences and things. So I am always appreciative of, of that early mentoring and, um, you know, the, the ability to kind of reach out, you know, as things come up. Um, but he's, uh, of course, renowned for responding to people and being so, so pro-social, gracious and, and helpful. So uh, I think says more, more about his positive qualities than anything about me. <laughs> When you were in your PhD program, we're going to reminisce a little bit. What was the biggest life lesson that you learned when you were a PhD student? Oh, gosh, um, a life lesson. From or maybe a not PhD the biggest, because that might take little time. But what's a good life lesson that you could share for our other listeners? They're probably PhD students that want to learn vicariously through your experiences. Oh, there you go. Now you've put it on the <laughs> in, in my in my own literature, too. So yeah, I have to answer. I think the the most interesting thing for me was, you know, kind of especially coming out of class years, you know, and then being really, truly independent to work on your own, you know, um, getting that rhythm and that routine down for for how you work. And it's different for everybody. There's people who write 30 minutes a day. There's people who write everything in an intensive three day stretch, you know, but for me, finding that rhythm was helpful, not just for kind of writing papers, but also just for working more generally that expanded out to teaching that expanded out to just kind of overall time management. And so that was definitely something that I picked up um, or that, you know, you really had to learn in graduate school just because, you know, it was the first time being out such minimal structure. What works best for you in terms of like your writing schedule, your day-to-day activities? I tend to be more of a kind of concentrated writer writing in you know uh, more intensive sprints um i think for me there's a lot of kind of stewing on things um and you know letting ideas mull over for a little while and then really trying to put pen to paper um but trying to do that a couple times um during the process just because once you start trying to write it out you realize that what might have made sense in your head isn't translating as well to to paper right and so you know the classic wykean aphorism of how do i know what i think till i see what i say Mm -hmm. i think applies a lot in the work that we do because it you know the the integration of two different theories or two different literatures might make a ton of sense in your head and then you're trying to sit down and actually build it out and to put it down stew on it some more, come back to it. So I've, I've always been a little bit sporadic in, in writing in that way. But again, that's, that's kind of the approach that's worked for me, but yeah. uh, everybody finds their own rhythm. Sure. I guess my one, I have one last question. And yeah. if I were to start PhD program, let's say like next year, what advice would you give to a student? 
I mean, I guess outside of, you know, you need to manage your time. But I think for you, you started your PhD directly after undergrad. I did. Yeah. So like I said, got kind of exposed early on and, and pretty quickly decided like, oh yeah, this is the right fit for me. I'm, I'm really excited for this career. Um, you know, working with Adam, also uh, a number of other great faculty at UNC, Francesca Gino, Dan Cable, Brad Stotts, got to work with some amazing folks and it just sort of reinforced like, okay, this is what I want to do. So I applied and uh, went into the PhD straight out of undergrad. And so, um, you know, I had a, a little summer off in between, I guess, um, you know, moving and and getting ready. But I think the PhD is a long process and there's plenty of time for for reading during it. So I would say if you're starting one fall or, you know, in six months, um, get out, get some living done and, um, you know, experience a few things because you'll have plenty of time to read later. Um, that's all you'll be doing for a while. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't worry too much about trying to, you know, overly engineer and overly prepare going in. Because I think for, for many people, at least for me, for sure, interesting research questions have come less from, you know, oh, I noticed this theory and this theory don't quite jive. They've come more from things that are happening out in the world and the, the phenomenon that are out there. Um, so, Getting out, getting to see a little bit, I think, uh, is always quite nice. Yep, I've noticed with a lot of the scholars that we've talked to and even like in our own department, a lot of them say that their best work has come out of their experiences and uh, really seeing phenomena in the organization and saying, what is going on here? And then exploring that much more so than just finding a gap in the literature where you're like, hey, I could publish here this work. So I'm starting to see an upward trend that if you can find something that's really interesting that's happening and go for it, it sounds like that's a good approach to publish. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's all that I have. Is there anything that you would like to plug into the episode and let anybody know what you're working on or anything you just want to brag about for a minute? <laughs> uh, very little in that camp, but uh, appreciate the opportunity to come by and talk with you all and, um, yes. you know, wish you best of luck with the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It was that's great talking to you. And if you ever need anything, we're just an email away. And it was so great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. -bye.